You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, welcome to this week's Renegade Economist, where we're very lucky to have Ed Dodson here, our insider at Fannie Mae. You heard on the show uh, late last year. He's in Melbourne giving a presentation. And Ed, last time you were on the show, you really shocked me with this number that uh, when you started at Fannie Mae, you said 80% of your business was with 250 companies. Now, I thought that itself was a low number, but then you went on to say that by by the time of your retirement, which was 2008? 2005. 2005. Uh, that had fallen to just eight companies, which Fannie Mae did uh, 80% of their loans with. So, uh, and, and half of those companies were foreign, foreign companies. They weren't U.S. domiciled. There was HSBC. There was uh, the Bank of Australia. There was uh, Westminster Bank. Uh, a lot of uh, international financial organizations realized there was a good deal of profit to be made in buying or securitizing mortgage loans and, and then selling those securities, buying and selling those securities. So a lot of uh, the legislation that affected the financial markets in the United States really encouraged consolidation. So we had this whole process where, where commercial banks were being gobbled up. And part of that was because the laws had, had been in place for a long time, restricted banks from doing business across states. You were able to do business in sort of contiguous geographical areas, but then the whole financial deregulation opened it up, and that meant that all of a sudden the Bank of America could do business in 50 states in the United States, where HSBC could buy U.S. domiciled banks and create wholly owned subsidiaries. So, so as you say, Carl, over that period of time, not only the, the volume of money that was put into that market went from hundreds of billions to trillions. And the turnover was just enormous. And so it was just a matter of the huge amount of volume being so attractive to the large international financial institutions that they, that they merged, they consolidated, uh, and they, you know, many of the banks, for example, started to buy finance companies and second mortgage companies. They poured then billions and billions of dollars into those companies, which were the primary originators of the subprime mortgage loan. And those were, you know, stuff that was already high risk and high cost, but they produced high nominal yields to investors and investors just said, this is great. Let me, you know, get that opportunity to make money in it. And it resulted in the consolidation that you're talking about. Well, I was most surprised in your latest State of the Nation report to see that uh, non-banks had a greater market share of mortgage loans at 47.1% compared to banks at 43.9%. A lot of reforms were put in place following the Great Depression. Uh, They've been whittled away slowly. What is the role of these non-banking institutions uh, as uh, these more and more exotic uh, financial tools get rolled out? Well, uh, well, that's, that's a really difficult question to answer, except that banks still have to adhere to pretty strict regulation as to the percentage of their assets that can be put in to any asset field. So 
so a certain percentage of their assets can go into residential mortgage loans or or commercial real estate business or the automobile financing. And so that leaves a, gr- a big gap that's available to the non-bank regulated companies that have huge amounts of assets and they can put it into these these uh, business segments without the same kind of caps on the percentage of their business that's required. So when, when the, the volume is there and the nominal yields are there, it's going to attract a lot of capital. So do you see the role of non-banks going to uh, continue to expand? Uh, are there enough checks and balances in, in their field? Well, if you're talking about the United States, I guess the answer to that is what will happen in the next congressional election. If, uh, if Americans have decided that they've had enough of uh, the conservative Republican perspective and we get a Democratic majority back in the Congress, then there'll be a reshuffling. There'll be probably a lot of new regulation that'll, that'll push back on what the Republicans have done. I, I don't know. I wish if I had a crystal ball, I'd you know, give it to someone and let them invest some money for me and make me rich, but I have no idea what's going to happen. Yes, well, certainly interesting times. So, so this whole concentration across the economy, uh, I, was, I was struck by this uh, report recently called Market Power and Inequality, the Revenge of the Rontiers. And I had this line in here, uh, while a market capitalization of the top 100 firms listed on the stock exchange amounted to around 31 times that of the bottom 2,000 firms in 1995, by 2015, the winner-takes-most firms were worth 7,000 times more than their smarter, smaller rivals. So it's up from 31 times to 7,000 times in 20 years. Uh, this rate of consolidation uh, is just accelerating, and it's hard for people to really grasp how fast this uh, economy is merging. And it often strikes me when I go into our supermarkets that uh, we generally have just a couple of options now in terms of brands rather than uh, a full selection of uh, creams and whatnot. Uh, How do you see this market consolidation being addressed? Are we going to have to develop stronger antitrust type laws or how are we going to deal with this? Well, in my view, and this is not something I've really spent any time studying, I just report on the data and try to interpret it a little bit, but we're in a global economic situation. We have some countries like the Chinese that have enormous amount of excess dollars, excess euro, excess wherever they're selling, they have excess financial reserves. And where do they put it? They're looking for safety. They're looking for higher yields. And uh, there are other countries that have the same kind of dynamic. So it's a question of global concentration. And you can ask yourself, in Australia, look at the major corporations. Are they, they might have their headquarters in Sydney, but are they an Australian corporation? Where are their employees? Where are their major assets? What their balance sheets show that their major investments. So... Uh, I, I don't know where it's going. I mean, there still seems to be plenty of opportunity for newcomers. But the old statistic was that two out of three new businesses fail within the first couple of years. I don't know if that's higher or lower, but I suspect that it's probably higher. But the companies that do succeed are 
strongly capitalized and supported by the you know various investors out there that are willing to pour a lot of money and allow those companies to expand. And eventually, uh, the question is, do they become a market-dominating company? And then what do the regulators do about it? You know, what do they do about how many patents that company has able, been able to acquire uh, on just minor changes in their original patents? Or, or what else do they do to, to gain market control? But, um, but it seems though there's still a lot of companies that start up and do quite well, not just you know, in manufacturing, but the tech industry. I think there's a lot of specialization that occurs where small companies are very successful but they're they're providing for larger companies. So what do we what do we see? I don't I I don't know. It's the future is scary. We know it's cyclical. We don't know when the next downturn is coming exactly. We know it's going to be deep and and the trough will be deep and hurt and hurt a lot of people. There'll be a lot of collateral damage. But uh is it going to come in just a couple of years or 10 years? Um I don't know. And when I, in my teaching, what I when I talk about the economy in the United States, and and people get you know sort of scared, and they ask me advice for advice, I say, well, the best advice I can give you is if you can pay off your debts, and after that, fill your basement up with canned goods. You're a doomer too, Ed. Goodness me. Uh, well, we're trying to change our perspective here uh, to somewhat positive because there has been this whole era of uh, uh, there's been this new channel for entrepreneurial activity through the internet, and it seems like we might have reached a, a period of uh, consolidation in that space. But uh, you shared uh, with us earlier on in the year, and listeners will remember uh, just recently a broadcast uh, I played from Davos that asked about the role of rentiers in inequality. And there were some quite staggering figures there when it came to patents and this uh, uh, protectionism that companies were buying for themselves. Uh, I think uh, there was an example there where Google bought Motorola for $6 billion and was uh, ridiculed for it, but they were really after the uh, $2 billion worth of patents to protect some of their upcoming investments. So. Uh, yeah, this term rentier is uh, slowly gaining a little bit of traction. I nearly fell off my chair when I saw uh, this was uh, being discussed at Davos. Uh, what did you take from that discussion? Well, you know, I've listened uh, on the internet to to most of the discussions at Davos, and, and I, I sort of take it away from the same thing that you took away, and that is there is an awakening that a large amount of the income that is coming to corporations and even wealthy individuals and investors comes from primarily from privilege. Uh, and rentier privilege is a, is a big part of that, not just in real estate, but in finance and in patents, et cetera. So, um, you know, we, we really need a fundamental changes in tax laws internationally and in every country to begin to reward people for actually producing goods and services overtaking advantage of the legal mechanisms that allow you to claim the, you know, what other people are producing. So uh, when, when and if that might come, I have no idea. But, but certainly it's pretty clear when you look at the concentration and in income of income and wealth, particularly in the United States, for example, uh, we have this anomaly 
of calling rentier income capital gains. And yet at the same time in the real world, we all know that an actual capital good, a building, machinery, technologies, they do not resell for more than their cost of uh, development. They depreciate. And, you know, a building is a depreciating asset. Uh, a computer is a rapidly depreciating asset. And yet when people sell land or sell you know, other financial instruments, the gain is treated more favorably than ordinary income. And, and that really needs to change if we're going to have sustained economic growth globally. Now, how do we get it there country by country? That's one heck of a challenge. And so I think until, until there's the, we have, at Davos, we have people who are opinion makers. And there were a lot of, of opinion makers that not necessarily in the corporate level, but some in the corporate level, some in government, some in the nonprofit sector who are starting to see this. But uh, we don't know if it'll be enough of a, an impetus to actually see change in how, you know, how uh, income from, from producing things is tr it begins to be treated and respected from a tax potential better than income that's passively derived or, or derived from special privilege and speculation. At least that's the way I see it. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, and this week we're joined by Ed Dodson here in Melbourne uh, from Philadelphia. And in the background, as always, we have a roaming cast of thought provokers uh, with uh, Neil Gilchrist, a Georgist uh, we haven't seen for a long time, and of course, Emily Sims, our office manager here. Uh, where do you think this discussion of a rentierism, which is another word for monopoly rents, how are we going to build up this economic literacy so that uh, everyday people can hold their politicians? Uh, a point, there's been a lot of discussion this week in the press about state governments making housing affordability worse with their interactions with the market. How do we uh, continue this momentum forward? It may not be the answer you're after. I'm addressing specifically the question how do we get the ordinary person to know? And I don't think um, you can. I think much simpler concepts seem to be beyond the broader masses. I'm not being elitist or condescending here. I just think there isn't enough literacy of that kind out there. Also, I'm not sure it's necessary. I think maybe it's more a matter of getting the manufacturers, the producers, the non-rentiers, to use that pronunciation, to, to um, see how it's harming them and to be a countervailing force. People with their own power, the chambers of commerce and whatever, people who actually make stuff and employ people and so on, to, to respond and, uh, as a countervailing force. So, so arming them with the, the facts, although a lot of them employ economists anyway, perhaps the wrong ones, but but to encourage them to, to tackle that as a major impact on their profits and, and their productivity. Yes, well, 3CR listeners, that's why we do have this name called Prosper Australia is because uh, really when you get your head around it, this line of thinking can split the right wing by helping those entrepreneurs, the productive entrepreneurs, recognise that they're actually producing goods and services but yet they've got this tax burden hanging over their heads. 
whereas uh, land landlords, landholders and uh, natural monopoly owners pay very little in uh, taxation. It's not based on this uh, legal privilege uh, for this monopoly, as we heard with uh, Transurban recently, uh, and, and they can avoid paying taxes. So uh, that's what we're talking about is levelling this playing field. And yeah, I kind of flinch a bit when you say it's below the everyday person's understanding, but surely we can get a comedian or someone to really break this down so that uh, you know, we can call this out as it is. Emily. To answer the question, like um, I've just got in my hand a report that has been done, some research that's been done from the New Economics Foundation in Britain. And what they did is they went out and they um, spoke to a whole bunch of uh, focus groups about the way that they think about the economy. And they came up with these fundamental metaphors about the way the British public think about the economy. And um, some of the metaphors that they used were things like the economy as a bucket. You know, people saw the nation as a functioning like a pot with people putting in or taking out. Uh, we've got that metaphor here, the lifters or leaners, you know, has been used by our former treasurer. Um, there's idea that the economy is all about money and there was this metaphor about circulation and that we were on the edge of disaster, kind of, you know, stocking the, um, the basement with canned goods. But also they, uh, the models that people had around thinking about the economy was that there was some, the system was rigged or that there was some kind of hidden agenda. And at the bottom of that was this greed or human, you know, greedy human nature. And one of the problems with that is if we think about the economy in that way, we become incredibly fatalistic. So we do what it suggests, which is, you know, well, I can't afford to buy a house right now, but if I could stock the basement with canned goods, you know, um, in actual fact, we have a lot more power to change things in the economy, you know, particularly in terms of rebalancing the relationship between these uh, hidden forces. Like, for example, I was just last week having a conversation with some of the public servants who are administering the GAIC. And the GAIC is the Growth Areas Infrastructure Fund, which was brought in at the in 2010 to collect the windfalls from the rezonings on the edge of Melbourne when they brought in the urban growth zone. And there's a lot of money now sitting in that pot. And now industry and everyone's getting upset because the government haven't spent the money fast enough on public transport and the other things. But that's a small example of where, in actual fact, uh, a state government policy took away the honeypot. You know, it took away the, um, the windfall gains from those rezonings. And that kind of policy could be easily extended into other parts of Melbourne. I mean, those are the kinds of levers. I think that, you know, for Prosper at least, and what we're trying to do here is start to say, you know, there's a lever, pull that and get some power back. What, what Emily uh, sort of struck up in my mind is what I've been following in the United States of late, sort of the, the, the blowback from the election that brought Donald Trump into the presidency and the Republican Party as the dominant party in our Congress. And the reaction on the part of people who are very much opposed to that perspective that that, that conservative element brings have centered around uh, Bernie Sanders and his plan for sort of uh, leveling the playing field. And Bernie Sanders is trying to build a citizen movement and there are other 
groups in the United States who are looking very closely at our problems from a systemic point of view, which hasn't happened for a very long time in the United States. And so the progressive side of our population, you know, the Green Party, for example, uh, and those who are willing to call themselves today socialists, whereas that word in the United States and the word Marxism in the United States were two, two words that one would never speak in public uh, unless you wanted to experience serious ridicule. But now the, that perspective is beginning to, to find a broader and broader audience. And for those who are listening uh, to this program, there's, there's a, a, prof, a professor of economics that I've been paying a lot of attention to probably for the last year. Uh, his name is Richard Wolff. And he, is, he taught at the University of Massachusetts for most of his career, and he taught mainstream economics. He taught neoclassical economics. He, uh, you know, he retired from that position and is now teaching at the New School in New York, which is you know, much more leftist in its orientation. And so what Richard Wolff is trying to get p people to listen to is that um, Karl Marx really wasn't such a radical, that he, his analysis was an analysis of capitalism, and he never advocated socialism. He just, he just analyzed the failings of the system that we call capitalism, but really never adhered to the capitalist model in, in the sense of, of creating universal capitalism, by which I mean that every person in, the, in our society would derive some degree, significant degree of income from the ownership of capital. That never developed in the United States, and so therefore, by that definition, capitalism has never really existed. And what Richard Wolff is telling us, if we're listening, is that what Marx really proposed was a society where industrial uh, cooperation was the model, worker-owned cooperatives, all sorts of enterprise cooperatives, where, where the workers come together, they own the companies, They're, they could be for-profit companies, they would hire the management or we'd be self-managed, and we would have a different, a very different systemic model of production of goods and delivery of services. Now, am I fully convinced that this would work in the United States, given the intense amount of financial uh, reserves required for a lot of the corporate activity that exists? I don't know. But certainly, for smaller organizations, the cooperative model has enormous benefits, and it, and it deals with some of the social and economic inequalities that have existed. And one of the models that, that Richard Wolff points to is the Mondragon enterprises in Spain. And you, if you don't know about the Mondragon uh, cooperatives, you should find out and take a look at what they've offered, because it's a very successful social economic experiment. It's not perfect by any means, but it is part of that model. And, uh, and as, as uh, Carl and I have talked about, when I, when I was working in the housing sector, one of the models that I supported in my corporate environment were community land trusts. Uh, and a community land trust is a really vibrant model to take the land cost component out of owning a home. Uh, it makes housing affordable affordable over the long term. It can, be make, can make housing affordable in perpetuity. Uh, but the community land trust has to be well designed. 
well-managed, and, uh, but it, it's just part of this whole model. It goes back to the study of, <clears throat> excuse me, the French philosopher Proudhon. If you've never heard of Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, look him up on the internet. He founded or helped to found the mutualist movement in France, and basically Proudhon's view was we're not going to be able to overturn the social order, but we can perhaps build a parallel social order independent of the existing social order based on cooperative organization. So mutual banks, mutual working uh, you know, organizations, etc. So those are alternative ideas that can be pursued, and I think those of us around the world who are concerned about the shift to the right, to the radical right, to the, the total defense of property rights over human rights, have to think about systemic change and what can get us to, to meaningful systemic change to greater equality of opportunity. And those are just some of the thoughts that I've had over the last year or so since Carl and I have talked. I think the observations that you just made, Ed, were really relevant to actually getting back to the discussion about the Davos clip. Richard Hausman, who was in discussion with Guy Standing, talking about the um, increase in inequality due to rentier capitalism, was talking about this tension between the benefits of standardization and industry concentration for technological diffusion and therefore development in underdeveloped areas of the world. um, The tension between that standardization and industry uh, concentration and monopoly. And I think that what you've pointed to with the mutualist uh, kind of models, land trust being one, um, but the others that you mentioned, cooperative housing, et cetera, uh, that offers an an opportunity to ensure that we get the benefits of standardization with these larger platforms without those big risks that come with monopoly. And, you know, obviously, uh, we've been concerned about um, privatizations. I mean, at the moment in Victoria, we're still just trying to stop the natural monopolies that are owned by the public being re- or privatized for the first time. We've been pursuing this land titles registry uh, campaign and government selling a major function of, 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 of the land titles office. But really, I mean, that's what we're talking about is, is returning equity stake to the public in some of these emerging platforms. Yes, uh, the movement is there. Another world is possible. Uh, many of these things are underway, but let's hope that uh, soon we're going to reach uh, more of a critical mass with uh, substantial evidence behind uh, the sharing of uh, community endeavour uh, back with the people and using that to uh, fund the tax cuts we need. All right, thanks so much for listening to this week's Renegade Economist with uh, Ed Dodson, Emily Sims, and Neil Gilchrist. Great to have your support here on the 3CR Airwaves. Thanks a million for listening. Check the show notes on earthsharing.org.au.